I love it. Star Trek genuinely inspired people and continues to inspire people today. When Matthew Iglesias wrote a story about the new Star Trek films, he noted that the highest rated Mad Men episode ever, has anyone seen that TV show Mad Men? It's like about ad executives. It's very popular and chic, right, while it was on. The highest rated episode of that series ever, the season five episode premiere, drew three and a half million viewers. A number of viewers that even the series Enterprise, the worst and least successful of all Star Trek series, generally beat in the majority of its episodes. Yes, that's worth a round of applause, isn't it? People really love Star Trek. Star Trek and its optimistic vision of the future, its humanist vision of the future, for after all, Gene Roddenberry was an explicit humanist, inspired people. It certainly inspired me. This is, these are some embarrassing photographs. When I say in my biographies I was raised on Shakespeare, Sagan, and Star Trek, I'm not kidding. This is me in my Star Trek uniform acting out the different poses on the bridge of the Enterprise, and this is me in a Star Trek uniform with George Takei. Yes, one of my heroes. It's one of my favorite photos ever. Indeed, I would even say that this insignia, the Star Trek insignia, means more to me, has more weight when I see it, than this one, which some of you might not even know. This is the insignia of ethical culture, right? And I wonder why that is. Why is it that the symbol of Star Trek seems to me to represent more of my values than this one? My argument basically, is that this is because Star Trek is a collection of stories. Star Trek is essentially a collection of secular parables which help people navigate ethical dilemmas from a humanistic perspective. The clearest example of this, let's just go forward a bit, there we go. The clearest example of this is from the fifth Star Trek film. And I promise this whole talk is not all about Star Trek. Only the vast majority of it is about Star Trek. The clearest example of this is from the fifth Star Trek film featuring an aged uh, original series cast. And the plot of this film, in case you, is there anyone here who hasn't seen Star Trek V? Shame on you. Go, go and see it. Verify that immediately. The, so the plot of the movie, for those, for those who haven't seen it, is that the crew of the Enterprise, following Spock's half-brother, go to an out-of-the-way corner of the galaxy in order to find a mythical planet where, apparently, God lives and creation began. And they do actually reach the mythical planet, and they do encounter a being which claims to be God, and even has the whole sort of beard and, and weathered face to go with it. And the being demands that the Enterprise, that the starship, be brought closer to the planet. And Captain Kirk, displaying the skepticism common to Gene Roddenberry's characters, responds, Excuse me. Excuse me. I just wanted to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? In retribution for his impudence, God zaps Kirk with lightning bolts, and then Spock... And then saying as justification, he doubts me. Then he asks McCoy, the ship's doctor, do you doubt me? And McCoy responds, I doubt any god who inflicts pain 
for his own pleasure. Now what this is, clearly, is an exploration of the problem of theodicy, the problem of evil, within a science fiction universe. A complex philosophical problem. Why does evil stuff happen if God, an all-powerful being, exists? If God is not doing evil things? And how is an evil God worthy of worship? That complex philosophical question is put into a narrative framework to help us understand what's going on. It's essentially a parable. The only difference, I submit, between the parables of Jesus and the parables of Gene Roddenberry is that Gene Roddenberry's parables are better. (laughs) I I don't mean this very seriously. They're better in that they, first, are more entertaining, and secondly, they embed better moral principles. They embed the sorts of moral principles that we come here today to celebrate. And we respond to them because we, as a species, respond to stories. In this book, amazing book by Jonathan Gottschall called The Storytelling Animal, the author says we, as a species, are addicted to story. Human minds yield helplessly to the suction of story. No matter how hard we concentrate, no matter how deep we dig in our heels, we just can't resist the gravity of other worlds. Now the world's religions understand this. We can think of the world's religions indeed as collections of stories. Moses parting the Red Sea. The wonderful stories of the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata. The stories of Jesus, feeding of the 5,000. Buddha's walk to enlightenment. In fact, he says, Gottschall in his book, if you take away the lists of begettings, the strings of thou shouts and thou shalt nots, the instructions on how to sacrifice animals and how to build an ark. You have a collection of intense narratives about the biggest stuff in human life. Religion, he says, is the ultimate expression of story's dominion over our minds. Story is the religious mode of communication. Story is how religion inspires and instructs people. But for some reason, not our religion, right? We don't really traffic so often in stories, parables, and narratives. Humanism is the thinker, the rational, without narrative or story too often, particularly when we convey what we mean about our lifestyles to the public. Humanism on the American Humanist Association's website is described as A philosophy of life which without supernaturalism, and by that time most people are already bored. Right? Ethical culture describes itself as a humanistic, religious, and educational movement, dot, dot, dot. And you've already lost half of the audience already. What I've discovered over many years of talking to audiences like this and visiting humanist communities around this country and around the world, and this is very difficult for me to admit as a trained philosopher who's getting my doctorate in philosophy, is that people don't want a philosophy of life. They want a life story. They want a grand narrative. They want a quest and an important role in that quest. And religions frequently provide people with that quest. John Gardner once said that real art creates myths a society can live by instead of die by. And so I ask... What are the myths 
the stories that we can live by as ethical culturists and humanists? What stories should we we be telling each other and the world to encourage more people to take on our worldview and consider attending a society like this? I work at the Kennedy School of Government with a professor called Marshall Gantz, who is an organiser who has worked for many years with many different causes, farm workers, political campaigns, and he's credited for helping Obama win both the first and second elections through training organisers to tell their stories. And I'm now helping him teach a class on public narrative, which is about the art of telling stories to inspire people to action. And he says this about stories, and I think he's right. One of the things that distinguishes movements from interest groups is that movements have narratives. They tell stories, because they're not just about rearranging economics and politics. They also rearrange meaning. They're not just about redistributing the goods. They are about figuring out what is good. Where do you go for hopefulness? Where do you go for courage? You go to those moral resources which are found within narratives. And my argument today is that we need all those moral resources we can get. As a movement which, and to be blunt with you, not every society is as healthy and vibrant as this one. It's a movement which often struggles to convey its values to the public. I think we need the moral resources which we find inside narratives. We can think of this as a problem of persuasion. Aristotle separated the art of persuasion into three legs of a tripod. Logos, ethos, and pathos. Logos is your rational argument, right? It's the message. It's Spock, right? It's statistics and data. And humanists tend to be very good at rational argument. We have that mastered. But Aristotle reminds us that's only one part of convincing people. You also need ethos. That's your credibility and authority as a speaker, your likability, and who is more credible and authoritative than Captain Picard? Exactly, bow down before him. <laughs> and that bald, shiny head, he's a very sexy man. But you don't just need, well, sometimes humanists are good at this, although often we're far too impolite in the wider world. Right? We, we often have quite reasonably credible and sometimes even likable spokespeople. But what we very frequently lack is the pathos. And this is about your emotional engagement with the audience. It's emotional appeals and personal connections. The guts and vim and fire of a Captain Kirk. And that's what I think we need. Aristotle suggests that we really need to locate our persuasive efforts in this middle of the tripod of persuasion. A little Venn diagram for you there. But I suggest very often, and I've seen this again and again and again as I try and help humanist communities all around the country communicate their message more effectively, our, our tripod looks like this. Right? We have a walking great logos. Right? We have all the arguments you could possibly ever want. And maybe we have someone who's credible to give them, like a, a, a scientist or something. But we have this teeny pathos whereby we're just not connecting emotionally with anybody. And it was like, oh, very interesting, yeah, very smart. I couldn't give a damn, right? That's basically the response we often get from our appeals. And so I think we need to do something about this. And I think that one of the ways we can do it is by sharing stories. So what are the stories we should tell? Well, ironically, I think the stories we could be telling are the very finest ones. Humanism, at its root, lifts up the highest human values 
and makes them the center of our worldview and of our lives. And the story of those values, the story of our progress towards those values as a species, is truly the greatest story ever told. So I want to suggest, like, this is a great quote, I, but I can't read it because it's too bright. It's a great quote from Susan Jacoby who says, we must reclaim the language of values and emotion from the religious right, which loves to portray... Wow, thank you! Loves to portray atheists as bloodless, professorial devotees of scientific principles that have nothing to do with real human lives. And I think we have to get over this problem by telling stories. And so I want to suggest some of the sorts of stories that we might tell to help us overcome this problem. First, I think we should tell stories that lift up our values. And in my understanding of it, humanism is based on three values. I make it very simple. Reason, compassion, and hope. Reason, the idea that the way we understand the universe is extremely important, and that we must strive to understand it better. Compassion, the idea that every person is equal in moral worth and dignity, and no one is fundamentally more important than anybody else. And thirdly, hope, the idea that human beings can, working together, make the future better than the past. That's it. That, for me, is what humanism is fundamentally about. And I think we can tell stories about each of these three components, which would inspire people and invite more people to come and join ethical culture. So first, let me tell you a story of reason. Does anyone know what this is? It says on the slide what it is. <laughs> it's the Curiosity rover, right? It's the Mars rover that's currently scuttling across Mars. And I think this makes for a great story of reason. Just think about it. This thing was shot into space on an Atlas V rocket, cruising through 352 million miles of space in just 253 days. Faced with the challenge of landing on Mars, where the atmosphere means that air brakes and parachutes are insufficiently effective. So the scientists had to devise a completely new entry, descent, and landing system, which utilized 76 autonomous explosions, perfectly choreographed, to land the vehicle successfully and safely on the planet Mars. After the more than 350 million mile journey, it landed less than one and a half miles from its intended target. And it was truly inspiring. If you remember those scenes, there it is, parachuting down onto the surface of Mars. I find that really moving. Taking its first self-portrait that it tweeted to the world. And I think it was accompanied with the phrase, Crater, I am in you, which is suggestive in a slight way. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but I, I, I'm sure that you remember the images of hundreds and thousands of people standing in Times Square watching the landing of the Mars rover live. Thousands cramming onto the sidewalks and onto the streets, gazing up at the monitors broadcasting the event and celebrating with chants of science. Science! Science! Which is not something you hear very often in American society. This story inspired people, and it continues to inspire me. Every time I get a tweet from the Curiosity rover, I just have to smile. And I think that story tells us something about what we're capable of achieving if we use our reason. I think it's inspiring and exciting, and I love those images of people looking into the sky. Second, stories of compassion. For me, one of the absolute... Pinnacles of compassion is Nelson Mandela. This is a story that shows, in the words of Stephen Fry, someone on the eternal adventure of trying to discover moral truth in the world. 
Now, we all know him from his decades-long campaign to end apartheid in South Africa, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, his unbreakable spirit while he was a captive in jail as a political prisoner for many, many years of his life. But what so inspires me about Nelson Mandela is his refusal to demonize his opponents, holding on to their full dignity and humanity, even, even the dignity and humanity of the people who imprisoned and despised him. He said that courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. And I think that telling stories about the moral exemplars which we look up to is inspiring. It's certainly inspiring to me. He also knew something about the power of stories. He said, if you talk to someone in a language they understand, that goes to their head. If you talk to them in their language, that goes to their heart. And stories are a way to talk to people in their language. Because human beings all speak the language of story. It's built into us deep. And finally, a story of hope. I love this story. Susan B. Anthony is a wonderful example for me of the human capability to triumph against the odds. My professor, Marshall Gantz, says that sometimes David can beat Goliath. Sometimes the powerless can wring concessions from the powerful and therefore make change. And one of the things this makes me think of, who's seen that movie Lincoln? Yeah, most people in here? Do you remember that scene in the movie where they're debating the act that they're trying to pass and one of the opponents to the bill says, what, basically, what next? If we, if we do, if we abolish slavery, what happens next? Well, African Americans want the vote. Women want the vote. And the whole audience erupts into uproarious laughter, including the people who are in favor of ending slavery. Because even those people, those people on the cusp of moral imagination of their time could not see far enough to imagine women as full people. That reminds me how difficult it often is to see beyond the moral horizon of our times. And I often wonder what is lying beyond our moral horizon. What are the things that we do unconsciously without thought today which our grandchildren will detest us for? I think that's a very interesting question. Well, Susan B. Anthony and her story makes me think of that. Because she was someone who was very self-conscious about her appearance. She was afraid of public speaking. And she yet made herself into an icon for a nascent movement that was trying to achieve something which at the beginning of it was unthinkable, which was a certain measure of equality and rights for women. She was tried and convicted for illegally voting as a woman in the 1872 presidential election. She voted Republican, so nobody's perfect. <laughs> but in the trial, she refused to allow, um, she was refused to allow, I'm sorry, let me try again. The judge refused to allow her to testify on her own behalf and ordered the jury to return a guilty verdict. So she was working against extraordinarily entrenched systemic prejudice when a judge basically tells the jury what the conviction should be, and you're not allowed to testify on your own behalf, and you're scared of public speaking anyway, then you're working against the odds. But she still had extraordinary hope for the future, because towards the end of her life, when she was asked if women would ever gain the right to vote, she said, it will come, 
but I shall not see it. It is inevitable. We can no more deny forever the right of self-government to one half of our people than we could keep the Negro forever in bondage. It will not be wrought by the same disrupting forces that freed the slave, but come it will, and I believe within a generation. Well, 14 years after her death, in 1920, her dream came true, and her hopes were fulfilled. And I think stories like that remind us that moral progress is real and possible. And we can continue to achieve it. Those who tell us that we don't progress morally or that our species is incapable of getting any better have forgotten those sorts of stories. Because we have done it and we will continue to do it. So these are the sorts of stories which I believe will convey our values to the public. The sorts of stories which will inspire people to give their lives over to humanism. Indeed, they are the sorts of stories that this place, the Ethical Culture Society, was built to house. Felix Adler said in his founding address of ethical culture, and I repeatedly return to this founding address for inspiration, Now for this purpose we propose to unite our efforts in association, to set apart one day of the seven, this day, as a day of weekly reunion, a day of ease that shall come to repair the wasted energies of body and mind. We will meet to illustrate the history of human aspirations, to trace the origin of many of those errors of the past whose poisonous tendrils still cling to the life of the present, but also to exhibit its pure and bright examples, and so to enrich the little sphere of our earthly existence by showing the grander connections in which it everywhere stands with the large life of the race. When it says above this stage, this is the, the place where people meet to seek the highest, is holy ground. That's what it means. It means we come here to share these stories of human inspiration, achievement and hope in the hope that they will inspire us to do the same. So at the end of my presentation, I, I want you to take, to take you on a second journey. Back to rural America. But this time, I want to take you to Kansas. Because my bio says I grew up on Shakespeare, Sagan, and Star Trek, and that is true. But I also grew up on Superman. I used to, yes, I, I used to um, visit my grandfather's house, and I would watch the Superman movies again and again and again. He would make these tall glasses of chocolate powdered milkshake, and I would drink them down and just watch the Superman movies over and over again. And he would say to me, James... It's not Superman. He doesn't eat soup. <laughs> it's Superman. He's super. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's an eccentric man, my grandfather. Uh, I haven't taken on his pronunciation, but I've certainly taken on his love of Superman. And there is one particular scene in those movies which, however many times they redo it, always moves me and strikes me to the core. Yes, Superman. It is this scene when uh, Jor-El, Superman's father, puts the young Kal-El Superman into the spaceship ready to be sent away from their dying planet, Krypton, to Earth. And every time that scene makes me cry. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. It doesn't matter if I'm seeing the original movies, Superman Returns, the latest Superman Man of Steel, doesn't matter. Every time 
this scene makes me cry. Because every time they give Joel a speech about what he hopes for his son, which to me encapsulates some of my hopes for myself and for us, Joel says in Superman Returns, your leadership can stir others to their own capacities for moral betterment. They can be a great people. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason above all, their capacity for good, I've sent them you, my only son. Now, we don't believe that anyone will fly down and rescue us. No son has been sent to lead us to moral betterment. We have no Superman as a light to show us the way. But we have each other. Felix Adler once said the hero is the one who kindles a great light in the world, who sets up blazing torches in the dark streets of life for others to see by. The saint is the one who walks through the dark paths of the world, themselves a light. Well, we can be heroes. We can be saints. We can tell stories of past heroes and saints. Joel L. in the latest retelling of the great Superman story addresses these similar words to the young Superman. But he could equally be addressing them to each of you. He says, you will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. I hope that you and everyone at the Ethical Society of Washington will help each other and other people who are not here accomplish wonders. For these are the voyages of the starship Earth. <laughs> Our continuing mission to explore what is strange in others and come to understand. To seek out new ideas and new conceptions. To boldly dream what no one has dreamt before. Thank you very much.